Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Please view our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. So our speaker this evening is our own founding executive director of the Institute of Catholic Culture. Father Hezekiah Carnazzo graduated from Christendom College in 2004 and completed a master's degree in systematic theology with an advanced apostolic catechetical diploma at Christendom's graduate school. In 2009, Father Hezekiah founded the Institute of Catholic Culture and has since served as its executive director. Ordained to the priesthood in 2016, Father Hezekiah has lectured throughout the U.S., is a regular guest on the Sunrise Morning Show, and has appeared on EWTN's Sunday Night Live and Marcus Grody's Coming Home Network. He serves as pastor of St. George Melkite Greek Catholic Church in Sacramento, California, where he lives with his wife, Linda, and their seven children. Please welcome for the evening our own director, Father Hezekiah. Thank you, Becky, and God bless all of you joining in here this evening. Uh, let's let's begin in prayer with uh, one of my favorite passages, uh, some of the opening words from St. Ephraim's, uh, Ephraim the Syrian's hymns on paradise. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. I took my stand halfway between awe and love. A yearning for paradise invited me to explore it but awe at its majesty restrained me from my search. With wisdom, however, I reconciled the two. I revered what lay hidden and meditated on what was revealed. The aim of my search was to gain profit. The aim of my silence was to find comfort. Joyfully did I embark on the tale of paradise, a tale that is short to read, but rich to explore. My tongue read the story's outward narrative, while my intellect took wing and soared upward in awe, as it perceived the splendor of paradise, not indeed as it really is, but in so far as humanity is granted to comprehend it. Lord Jesus, you who promised that when two or three are gathered in your name, you would be here among us. We ask you to be here now enlightening our study, guiding our conversation, our thoughts, that in all things we might be drawn up to glorify your holy name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I don't know where I muted myself there, but uh, those, I hope that was clear. That was a little reading from St. Ephraim's Hymns on Paradise. I hope that got in there. But um, this is a, a, a work that is um, a dear friend of mine. The book itself is a dear friend of mine um, that uh, I refer back to regularly. And uh, it's wonderful for meditation, uh, for study. Uh, and so forth, St. Saint he- Saint Ephraim's Hymns on Paradise, um, in which he reflects in a poetic way upon 
the Garden of Eden, upon the story of Paradise, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Um, and um, I'll be referring to it a number of times this evening. For those that have your library near at hand, I will be quoting uh, a number of times from uh, Pope Benedict, Cardinal Ratzinger's Spirit of the Liturgy. Um, as well as a quotation from the Catechism of the Catholic Church and a number of other uh, things to share with you, the wisdom of the fathers and so forth, because you didn't come here this evening to hear Father Hezekiah, but rather to learn from the great wisdom of those that have come before us. It is my honor to share that wisdom with you this evening as we reflect together upon the gift of the Eucharist in what I would say is its proper context, and that is uh, the story of paradise, the Garden of Eden, um, and uh, and to do so by way of reflecting upon the scriptures as well as being guided by the church fathers and uh, and the great theologians that have come before us. I want to begin this evening by reminding you of a principle which I constantly remind you of. And if you feel tonight a couple of times like Father Hezekiah just keeps saying the same thing, it's because repetition is the mother of all learning. And if we don't get this down, we won't get the most important things down. Yes? And so I want to begin with that principle I always go back to, and that is good theology is always theocentric yes it's always god-centered and if it's not god-centered that is in who god is then we will begin uh down a path which will which will ultimately not bear the fruit that god intended it to bear the starting point is critical uh as it will reveal to us also the end point or our goal we were created for god we were created by god and we were created for God. Yes, he is the first and final cause of our existence, period. And everything, everything in our faith, everything in our life must be understood in these terms. I'll share with you here at the outset a famous quotation from St. Athanasius, St. Athanasius, who said, God became man that man might become God. As St. Peter says, that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, that we might become partakers of the divine nature. As he has become partaker of our human nature, he has drawn us up to be a participant in who and what he is. And I, I see so oftentimes a, a, an allergy to St. Athanasius's statement here. And I see this quote modified by otherwise well-intended uh, uh, speakers or, or writers who will say that God became man, that we might become like God, or that we might, uh, I don't know, however you want to put it, but but it's an allergy which I think touches upon a serious mistake, a serious problem, a minimalist view of what God has done for us and what he desires to do for us versus what I would call a maximalist view, which capitalizes or understands uh, the power of God's love. And I, I go so far as to say this is the root, if, uh, the fundamental root and, and problem, the division between the entire Protestant world and apostolic Christianity. But that, my, my brothers and sisters, is for, for another talk. This is a misunderstanding, this, this minimalist view of what God has done for us, it, it, it exists because of a breakdown 
in our starting point, our referent point. And once we lose our anchor in who God is, in our understanding of the faith, we will lose our perspective on what and who man is, made in the image and likeness of God, what the created order is for, and ultimately what salvation is all about. Thus, the breakdown, I believe, in belief in the Eucharist, in the real presence of God in the Eucharistic gifts. And so I, I want to open our, our evening this uh, tonight, this, our, our time together, with this problem, because I, I think that most, most Catholics and most Christians have uh, a concept of the church as something I would call as plastic. Now, that's not really the right term, okay, but I'm going to use it anyways because I can't get it out of my head. The plastic church, right? The, the invented church. The, insur- the church which which was kind of born on Pentecost or, or maybe even worse, invented by men. Yeah, a, a medieval invention with all of its trappings and all of its rules in which we feel safe to live. And of course, of course, if we take that extreme approach of the of the invented by men, then then, of course, the, uh, the church can be changed. Her teachings can be changed. And I don't think I need to go much further in light of, you know, recent news <laughs> coming out of certain eternal cities that our concept of the church has been dislocated from its foundation in who God is. We must, we must restore this understanding, our understanding of the nature of the church. For if I do not restore this, if I do not understand its true nature, then I will not know what it is for. And if I don't know what it is for, what it is supposed to do, what its proper act is, then I will begin inventing ideas of what it's supposed to do, of what its proper act is. And as a result, I will begin corrupting my understanding of sacramental theology. For my brothers and sisters, are this the sacraments? Are the sacraments not uh, the the high point, the action par excellence of the church? Do you see? If I corrupt my understanding of the nature of the church because I have dislocated it from its foundation in who God is. I will not know what it's supposed to do, and then I will begin making up things for it to do. And when I confront what it does do, I will have to invent definitions of what those actions mean. Yes, baptism baptism becomes for us, uh, well, I, 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 I would venture to say, if I were to put it out there today, what does baptism do? Most of most people in here, even though you're very well formed as members of the Institute of Catholic Culture, what does it do? He's saying, well, it washes away original sin. And of course, it, it does do that. But that is, that is not the sole purpose of baptism. To, to in, in a negative sense, to wash away something bad, but rather to give us a positive gift of participation in divine life. Yeah, I mean, for many, I'm sad to say in the church today, baptism has become simply a ceremony. Yeah, a ceremony by which 
Um, I do something nice that my parents told me I'm supposed to do and take pictures and so forth. Okay. Confirmation becomes what I would call a Catholic bar mitzvah. Yeah. Uh, an opportunity for me or my child to make a decision about their Christian faith. Chrismation or confirmation is not an opportunity for anyone to choose God. It's an opportunity for God to choose the person. It's a complete turning on its head of the reality. Yeah. The Eucharistic gifts become uh, what a, a token, a wafer of uh, which is part of a ceremony, but it's part. It's far from the question of my salvation, and, and I'm serious about that. If you if you want to know why there is a lack of faith in the Eucharist as the body of Christ, it is because we have detached our theology from God as our starting point and have sadly begun to invent definitions which are foreign to him. Again, if we know what a thing is, then we will know what it is supposed to do. I'm going to give you this. This is, this is a philosophical principle. Okay. I'm going to give it to you. I'm not charging you anything tonight, guys, Lucille. Okay. Maura. Okay. It's all free of charge, Gordon tonight. Ready? Action follows being, write that down, or act follows being. It's a fancy way of saying what a thing does, it's being, what it does determines, or what it is, I should say, what it is, determines what it does, okay? Action follows being. We must restore our theocentric understanding of the faith, our God-centered understanding of the church, our Christ-centered understanding of the Eucharist, thus our time together, uh, the to- uh, our, our title for our talk, the Thanksgiving sacrifice, the Eucharist, where? In the place where you may think, why is he talking about that? The Eucharist in the Garden of Eden. We must regain a sense of God's original plan, rejected and lost by our first parents, and restored to us by Christ, and lived in the church, which he established. And this is our goal. And St. Athanasius says this, the first fact that you must grasp, the first, he says, the first fact that you must grasp is this, the renewal of creation has been accomplished by the self-same word who made it in the beginning. Thus, there is no inconsistency between creation and salvation. I'm going to just insert right there. Eden and the church. For the one father has employed the same agent for both works, fashioning the salvation of the world through the, cell, through the same word who made it at first. There is no inconsistency. This is the first order of business, my brothers and sisters. While we, our first parents, turned our back on God, he never turned his back on us. His plan for us remains the same. The evil one will never undo that. The evil one will never undo the work of the Lord. I oftentimes tell I, it's a, a little side side note maybe, but I oftentimes tell my parishioners when they're going through difficult times, 
I says, if, if you're going through a difficult time in your life, if the evil one is, is, is working strongly, get ready for the mighty acts of God are about to be revealed in your life. God is more powerful than the devil and his plan remains. Now, I'm going to do something which is so fancy you can't even believe it. I'm going to share my screen as a whiteboard. Is that working, Becky? I think that's working. I'm good. Check this out. All right. The garden. Oh, I'm red right now. Look at that. I don't know why I'm red. The garden and the church. I read you St. Athanasius' words. There is no inconsistency between creation and salvation. This means that I can learn about the garden, and when I learn about the garden, I discover the church. I can study the church, and my study will reveal to me God's plan for mankind in the garden. Now, while that graphic is up, I am going to read you the words of... St. Ephraim the Syrian. Now listen to this. He says this. Okay. The symbol of the divisions of the garden of life did Moses trace out in the ark. That's Noah's ark. And on Mount Sinai too. He depicted for us the types of paradise with all of its arrangements, harmonious, fair, and desirable in all things. In its height, its beauty, its fragrance. And it's, and it's different species. Here is the harbor of all riches whereby the church is depicted. Now, now this is, this is, this is a mind blower guys. Cause I'm just going to do for the sake of artistic, you know, whatever I'm going to going to, oh, my art is so horrible. Oh my gosh, this is really bad, but I'm going to, I'm just going to put up here the temple. Cause I love that the temple, but you know what else I could do? I could put as he did um, the ark. Um, what else did he mention there? Mount Sinai. Little arrows here, arrows there, arrows everywhere. These are all revelations of the same reality. Because there is no inconsistency between creation and salvation. For God's plan remains. And here, I'm set myself up very nicely to share with you my one of my very favorite quotations, which some of you have heard before, maybe ad nauseum but I don't mind because it's so good. And that's St. Porphyrios regarding the church who says the church is without beginning. It is without end and eternal. Just as the triune God, her founder is without beginning, without end and eternal. She church is uncreated just as god is uncreated she existed before the ages before the angels before the creation of the world before the foundation of the world as the apostle paul says she is a divine institution in her dwells the full whole fullness of divinity she is an an expression of the richly varied wisdom of god she is the mystery of mysteries she was concealed and was revealed in the last times, the church remains unshakable because she is rooted in the love and wise providence of God. The three persons of the Holy Trinity, 
constitute the eternal church. The word church, of course, means gathering. Yes, the three persons of the Holy Trinity constitute the eternal church. Let's just spend a moment here because it deserves our consideration. The church, the church as we know it, is a reflection of, is in the image and likeness of the life of the Trinity. Because the church is the gathering of those who are made in the image and likeness of God. God, who is a trinity of persons and has lived a life of loving communion, that is the pouring out of one's life to the other, which is what love is, of loving communion from all eternity. And this should come as no surprise to us, of course, because we are made in the image and likeness of God. So to come to know who we are, we simply need to ask who God is. And once we know that revelation, then we can understand why Jesus has done what Jesus has done in restoring us to God's original plan. This, this, this comes to us, by the way, very clearly, very beautifully in chapter one of Genesis. You want to grab your Bible, and I hope you have your Bible there. You know, I listed all my books I was going to use tonight. What an embarrassment. What an ass. Angie was like, he didn't list the Bible. Yeah, yeah, um, I, I do apologize because the book that we are using this evening, yeah, which goes without saying, is is the, the, the word of God. So here we are, Genesis chapter one, chapter one. And notice notice a couple things about Genesis chapter one. Now, I don't even have to read it to you because you got it all highlighted. You got it all boxed out. Every 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 uh, day is 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 sectioned out in your Bible so that you can see it as it's meant to be seen. And that is the picture, right? Right. And and Dominique is like raising her eyebrows. So I'm just gonna. There it is, guys. That's what it should look like. Okay, all boxed out in with your highlighters and your colors, so you're able to see the artwork. Because Genesis chapter one, as is m- many of the your 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 pages in your Bible are are designed by their author, literally laid out by your author, so that you can see certain patterns, and through those patterns, revealed something deeper than the words on your page. Yes. So the first thing you need to know is that. The the creation story has been revealed to us in a seven-day pattern, in a a pattern of seven, because the word seven in Hebrew shares a common root with the word for oath or covenant. The The number seven shares a common root with the word for oath or covenant. So the number seven is oftentimes used in the Bible as a symbol of covenant, as a symbol of of the oath which is sworn between God and his people. I'll give you an example of that. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. This is a story of Abraham and Abimelech. They get in a fight over a well that was dug in the Holy Land. And here it is, chapter 21, verse 25. Genesis 21, 25. You got it there? Cheryl, you got it? Verse 25. Okay. When Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water, which Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven, seven, you lambs apart of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, 
what are the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set apart? And he said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand that you may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place is called Be'er Sheva, the well of, of, of swearing, Sheva, or the well of seven. Yes? The well of the well of seven. So the, the number that he sets the seven units as, as, a, as a symbol of what has taken place. Yes? So let's go back to Genesis chapter one then and say the same thing, right? What are the meaning of these seven days, O Lord, that you have set before me? Well, you'll take these seven days from me as a sign of the covenant between us. Yes, that 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 there is a uh, okay, and so well, what the next question is this: What is a covenant? What happens when two people swear an oath? Well, I'll tell you that also is revealed to us in Genesis chapter one seven times, and it's desi- it's 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 revealed to us in a certain pattern, certain words, almost like a litany in the church. Now, some of you that don't attend Byzantine liturgy you will not quite understand this, but if you if you're a Byzantine priest or like Cheryl, you attend liturgy, you know that ad nauseum constantly throughout the liturgy we say over and over and over and over and over and over again lord have mercy lord have mercy lord have mercy lord have mercy until you're being beaten over the head asking for mercy yes well just like that there is a byzantine litany if you will built into genesis chapter one and it's this thing that god saw that it was good right and god saw that it was good and god saw that it was good and every single day of your genesis chapter one until we come to the culmination of this day in chapter chapter one verse 31 chapter one verse 31 and god saw everything that he had made and behold it was the seventh time very good yeah. What does it mean to see something as good? Yeah, I, I have some fluid in here, which will remain unnamed in my styrofoam cup in front of me. And I am I, 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 I have it here in case I get parched during the talk and I can take a sip. See, because I see it as good. Yes. To see something as good, to see something as good is to see it as desirable. Yes. Desire is the most fundamental movement of the will. The most fundamental movement of the will. It is to see the good in the other and want to be united to it. I mean, literally, as I take a sip from my styrofoam cup, as I take literally to consume, to be made one with it, yes? And when our will is oriented not at styrofoam cups, but but at, at persons, we call that most fundamental movement of the will love. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was desirable. God saw that it was worthy of being made one with, being united with, to share a common life with. And here, my brothers and sisters, we begin to discover the original purpose of creation, to be made one with God. Remember, our, 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 our time this evening is devoted to the Eucharistic gifts. And by extension, by extension, the sacramental gifts of, 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 of not only of bread and wine, but of but of oil and water, the created elements of this world. I, I ask you to turn your Bibles with me to uh, the Epistle to the Romans, Saint Paul's Epistle to the Romans. Okay, that's in the New Testament, Catholics. Okay, Romans. Yeah, I hope you got that. 
Alexander, you got that the, the New Testament. There you go. Okay. Just kidding. On oh, my Protestant brothers and sisters here tonight gathered here. I want I want you to just just soak all this in right now cuz I want all the Catholics that are here on screen. I just hold up your Bible. Right up here, hold up your Bible. Okay? There you go. Now, now you did it. Okay? You're in a Catholic Bible study and yes indeed, we all have Bibles out. You should be very impressed. Romans chapter 1, right here. Okay? Romans chapter 1 verse i'm gonna go to verse um verse 19 okay romans chapter 1 verse 19 for what can be known about god is plain to them the to men okay because god has shown it to them ever since the creation of the world his invisible nature namely his eternal power and deity has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made, period. Creation is for revelation. Creation is meant to be revelatory of God himself. It is, it is meant to literally, and don't, don't give me, don't please, don't give me the minimalist view of revelatory, okay? It is to communicate. It is to shine forth with the life of God. As St. Peter says, to become partakers of the divine nature. And of course, the high point of God's creation, the crown jewel of the creation story, is the creation of man, made in the image and likeness of God. One who, because he is in the image and likeness of God, is supposed to literally be and do what God does. Yes? He is to be in the image. He is to exist in the image and likeness of God. And this is where we can begin to see the Eucharist come into view. Just as God blessed creation and filled it with his life, just as he breathed his life into the soul of man. So man made in the image and likeness of God was to be a priest of paradise blessing as God had done what God planted in the garden, tilling and keeping it, breathing the life, if you will, that he had received from God into what the Lord had planted, making it grow not only physically, but in divinity. And offering back to his creator all that which God had placed in his hands in thanksgiving. Cardinal Ratzinger says in his Spirit of the Liturgy, the covenant is a relationship. Yeah, I talk about that Abimelech Abraham thing, right? Talking about Genesis chapter 1 seven times. The covenant is a relationship, God's gift of himself to man, but also man's response to God. And man's response to God, who is good to him, is love. And loving God means worshiping him. I'm going to say that again. The covenant is a relationship. God's gift of himself to man, but also man's response to God, response to God. Man's response to God who is good to him is love. And loving God means worshiping him. Yes? So I return to the title of our talk.
the Thanksgiving sacrifice. All right. And I'm going to do it by way of a question. And in the modern Zoom world, I'm going to take a survey right now. And I'm going to ask you guys a question. And that is, were Adam and Eve, here's my question. Okay. You ready for this? Were Adam and Eve called to offer sacrifice before the fall? Before the fall, were, were, were Adam and Eve called to offer sacrifice? Okay. So go ahead, throw it in there, get your stuff, get your uh, your votes in there. Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of right in there, middle, middle. We got a bunch of uh, ICC junkies in here that, uh, that, that that think they know the answer and a bunch of people that are a little bit on. Un- yeah. yeah, I mean, really sl- slit in the throat of the lamb. You know, here we go. We're split, guys. We are totally slit right now. It is 50-50. I kid you not. It is literally 50-50 right now. This is This is beautiful. I'm loving this. I'm loving this. All right, Becky, you can end this poll because that is so juicy. That's really great. I'm telling you right now, it's okay, 5149. It doesn't matter. I'm closing my screen. It is a 50-50 split. That's beautiful. I'm going to share with you the insights of a, a beautiful insights of one of the church fathers who you've never heard of before, but that's why you're at the ICC, Sedona the Syrian. In his work, Book of Perfections, Sedona. S-A-H-D-O-N-A, the Syrian. In his book of perfections, he says this, like a living sacrifice suitable and pleasing to God, man employs his body for rational service. He consecrates and somehow presents to God the vows and offerings of all his limbs and offers the sacrifices suitable for the action of grace, which are the rational fruits of the lips of those who confess his name by incessantly celebrating God in their body and soul, God to whom they belong now in definitive oblation. My brothers and sisters, everything is a gift. Our entire life, the air that you are breathing into your nostrils, the fact that you are standing, well, I'm standing, you may be sitting, on ground that is actually solid and can hold you up, everything is a gift. And the only proper response to a gift is to say thank you. And the Greek word for thank you is evkaristo, Eucharist. Evkaristo, the Eucharistic life. The Catechism of the Catholic Church. I've got it. Bingo. You've got it handy in front of you. Knock yourselves out. I'm turning to three, paragraph 358. Look at Dominique. She's got her catechism Bam, she's ready to go. Lisa. Okay, I'm gonna I'll give you guys a chance to turn there. Okay. This is one of my favorite little little gems here. Because it 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 just consolidates into a few words. It's got everything in these in this in this sentence. I'm in paragraph 358. Okay, Maura, you got your catechism there? All right, here we go. Ready? Paragraph 358. God created everything for man. But man in turn was created to serve and love God 
and to offer all creation back to him. God created everything for man, but man in turn was created to serve and love God and to offer all of creation back to him. I'm going back to to uh to uh rat singer spirit of the liturgy i'm on page 20 if anybody wants to turn there but i'm just going to read you the quotation okay thus we can see what the foundation of existence must be anthony are you pulling out spirit of liturgy right now is that what you look look god bless this guy this is at the icc nobody does this okay here we go all right i'm (laughs) i'm gonna go ahead and turn there just for for his sake because he's awesome okay Uh, anthony i'm down um um, I'm down uh, a, a few sentences from that 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 paragraph break. Thus, we can see paragraph a few sentences up from the paragraph break. <laughs> Thus, we can see what the definition. Oh, wait a minute, page twenty. Hmm. Yeah. Ah. Oh. Thus, we can see what the foundation. I misread what the foundation of existence in the promised land must be, the necessary condition for life and community and freedom, it is this. The steadfast adherence to the law of God, which orders human affairs rightly, that is by organizing them as realities that come from God and are meant to return to God. I'm going to just edit that down for simplicity's sake and read it to you this way. Thus we can see what the foundation of existence must be. It is a steadfast adherence to the law of God, which orders human affairs rightly. That is by, by organizing them as realities that come from God and are meant to, to return to God. Yeah. You remember, remember the question that was put to Jesus in the gospel of Matthew. I'm turning there. Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. That's where I'm going. Tell me when you're there, guys. Give me the thumbs up. Matthew chapter, okay, 20, you're there. 22, verse 34. You there? Okay. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question and tested him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? Now, I'm I'm stopping there for a second because I'm going back to Ratzinger's point here. Thus, we can see what the foundation of existence must be. It is a steadfast adherence to the law of God, which orders human affairs rightly. That is, by organizing as realities that come from God, it says gifts, and are meant to be returned to God. And this is what Jesus says. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. Yes. As, as recognizing them, as organizing as realities that come from God. And what is a reality that comes from God is a gift, is it not? Yes. And this is what love is. John tells us that God is love. Love is the giving of our life to the beloved. In the pouring out of God's life, he loves us. And we are made in the image and likeness of God in which we are meant to do what he has done. Namely, to love God and to do what he has done in loving others and pouring out the life we have received to those around us. Thus, we can see what the foundation of existence must be. It is a steadfast adherence to the law, the, the love of God which orders human affairs rightly. That is by organizing them as realities that come from God and are meant to return to God. What does this remind you of? Seriously, take yourself off a of mute. If you're on screen here, take, what does this remind you of? Realities that come from God and are meant to be returned to him. I want you to think of the mass that you experience 
What words are you just immediately? Take yourself off a of mute. Go ahead, Andrew. Offertory. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation. All creation. For, for through your goodness, we have received the bread we offer. In the Byzantine liturgy, we say, we offer you what is your own from what is your own in all and for the sake of all. And, and, and here, Cardinal Ratzinger, Spirit of the Liturgy, page 27, says, here begins the spiritual creation. If you've got the book, hold on just a second, just listen to this. Here begins the spiritual creation. The creation of the covenant. Creation look t- looks toward the covenant, but the covenant completes creation and does not simply exist along with it. And here we begin to see, I believe, the original worship of Adam and Eve. And so we need to reflect upon this return, huh? This, this, not only this gift that we receive, but also this return, uh, what, what we call, what, what Sedona calls the oblation or offering, or as I put my question to you, sacrifice. What does it mean to offer an oblation? What is sacrifice that man is called to make it? Yeah, what is sacrifice? What happens when we sacrifice something? And most often, I would dare say, based upon the survey, at least for 50% of you, but I was I would bet for more. For mo- most of us, I think that we oftentimes think of destruction, something which is killed, something which is slaughtered, something which is burned. But 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 Cardinal Ratzinger explains things a little differently. And for those that have your book in front of you, go ahead, turn to page 28. Page 28. I know this is not like assigned reading for tonight. You know, this is like, you know, we're going to actually be studying here at the ICC later in the year. This entire book in its entirety, we'll be going through this um, with, with Dr. Jared Stout. Okay. But here's my favorite passage from this book, hands down. And I'm coming down here on page 27. Sorry, I said page 28, page 27. I'm coming down to that bottom paragraph. Once again, we face the question. Okay, if you have the book, if not, that's fine. He says, once again, we face the question, what is worship? What happens when we worship? In all religions, sacrifice is at the heart of worship. But this is a concept that has been buried under the debris of endless misunderstanding. The common view is that sacrifice has something to do with destruction. It means handing over to God a reality that is in some way precious to man, which is why 50% of you said this would not have happened before the fall. Now, this handing over presupposes that it is withdrawn from use by man, and that can only happen through its destruction, its definitive removal from the hands of man. But this immediately raises the question, what pleasure is God supposed to take in destruction? Is anything really surrendered to God through destruction? One answer, he says, is that the destruction always conceals within itself the act of acknowledging God's sovereignty over all things. But can such a mechanical act really serve God's glory? This is why you got to love Pope Benedict. I mean, mm, this is good stuff. Okay. He says, obviously not. 
Obviously, our common conception of sacrifice is faulty. True surrender to God looks very different. It consists in accordance, in according to the to the fathers and fidelity to biblical thought, in the union of God, the, the union of man and creation with God. Belonging to God has nothing to do with destruction or non-being. It is rather a way of being. Mm. It has nothing to do with destruction or non-being. It is rather a way of being. And I ask you, what way of being is he talking about? What does he mean? I'm going to give you, maybe this is a little bit of a side. I'm just going to step to the side and give you a little thing just to, okay. From uh, from from a, a, a biblical scholar, uh, Father Fitzmeyer. He says, the, ble- the blood shed in sacrifice, speaking of the Old Testament sacrifices here, the blood shed in sacrifice was not a vicarious punishment meted out on an animal instead of on the person who immolated it, which is our common view of the sacrifice of Christ, he says. Rather, the life of the animal was consecrated to God. It was a symbolic dedication of the life of the person who sacrificed to Yahweh. Now, Pope Benedict gives us this um, in, a, in a bit of a graphic way. Um, and, and I think his, the terms he uses can be helpful. So I'm going back to the trusty old whiteboard. And I completely lost my pen when I was yelling at you guys. There it is. I got it. So... Pope Benedict speaks of this in, in these terms, in terms of two Latin words, exitus and reditus. Okay. He says, God in the act of creation poured out his life according to his nature, God who is love, bestowing that life upon man and all of creation. This is what he calls the exitus going forth. Yeah. Man in turn is called to offer himself and all of creation in return. Exitus is the free act of creation, the act of God's love toward creation, the overflow of God's love and affirmation of creation. It is to say, it is good that you exist. It is very good. Reditus, the free act of creation, oriented by man back to the creator. Thus, the divinization and and sanctification of creation. Sacrifice, therefore, as Ratzinger says, in in its essence is simply a returning to love and therefore divinization. The word sacrifice comes from two Latin words. Sorry, my handwriting is so bad. Sacri and ficare. To make holy, to make holy, sacrifice. My brothers and sisters, holiness is an attribute of God. It is to make God-like, or in terms that we've already been using this evening, to fill with God's life. St. Augustine says in his City of God, the true sacrifice then is every work done in order that we may draw near to God in holy fellowship. Done, that is, with reference to the supreme good and end in which alone we can truly be blessed. Theocentric. 
You see, I see. Uh, uh, this is it, guys. What man is called to do is who God has been from all eternity. And of course, this is all understood. This movement, this calling of man to offer sacrifice is our living out of our identity in the image and likeness of the one who is love. God who has poured out his life in love from all eternity in the loving communion of the Holy Trinity. Pope John Paul II says this, God is love. Quoting John chapter 1, verse 48, if you want to write that down. John chapter 1, verse 48. First John chapter 1, verse 48. And in himself, he lives a mystery of personal loving communion, creating the human race in his own image and continually keeping it in being. God inscribed in the humanity of man and woman the vocation, the capacity, and responsibility of love and communion. Love is therefore the fundamental and innate vocation of every human being. We are fundamentally made by God to do one thing, and that is love, to make God-like a firm creation in such a way as to will its perfection, and its perfection is its communion with God. Cardinal Ratzinger, continuing Pope John Paul II's thought, says this, in the return, in the reditus, in the worship of man, the creature existing in its own right comes home to itself. And this act is an answer in freedom to God's love. It accepts creation from God as his offer of love. And thus ensues a dialogue of love, that wholly new kind of unity that love alone can create. The being of the other is not absorbed or abolished, but rather in giving itself, it becomes fully itself. I share with you beautiful words of um, spiritual father who wrote a book called Thanksgiving and Praise. He says this, how important it is to offer to God, to pour out to him that which is within. When we live with thanksgiving rather than with bitterness, rather than with self-absorption, when we live with gratitude rather than with fear and complaint, when we live the Eucharistic life, and the thanksgiving life. Then we are able to be filled with the blessings of God, blessings that prior to that time we were closed to receive, blessings of release, blessings of mutuality, blessings of future hope. And I come back now to the beautiful words of, of, of Pope Benedict, repeating what I the quotation I gave you earlier. In the return, in the in the ready to in the worship. The creature existing in its own right comes home to itself. And this act is an answer in freedom to God's love. It accepts creation from God as his offer of love. And thus ensues a dialogue of love, that wholly new kind of unity that love alone can create. The being of the other is not absorbed or abolished, but rather in giving itself, it becomes fully itself. And this unity, my brothers and sisters, is not just a unity of God and man. It is the completion of the return of all of creation to its creator. The divinization of all creation at the hands of man who is made in the image and likeness of God who blesses. And in this moment, in this moment of blessing, creation becomes 
what I like to call a glorious symphony, giving praise to its creator. Truly a sacrifice, a make holy, making holy of praise, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Our every action becomes a rec recognition of who he is and the offering of our lives a sacrifice to God. I'm going to pull up one of my favorite, my favorite images um, that comes to us from the early church, depicted on the walls of the catacombs of an early Christian woman praying. I think uh, Becky will go ahead and pull that up on the screen if you can get that for us. I love this. I love this image. It's it's simple, but I love it because. It, it speaks so much to the gift of God's life and our offering of that life back to him. In this moment, as you look at this, at this image, in this moment of offering, creation is divinized, is transformed. It is infused with divine love, with life, and able, therefore, to communicate God's life. Not only man but all that which God has placed in our hands, all of the created order. We'll pull that image down and, and turn our Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, because I have to point out at this moment um, that um, this beautiful, this, these beautiful words of Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. You got it there, Lucille? Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden and in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. When, when my, this is not in the midst of the garden, meaning, meaning in the center, like geographically. Yes, it does mean that. But, but, but this, there's in the midst, in the middle, in the middle of paradise, in the most important place, in a central place, which impacts everything else, is creation divinized, from which Adam and Eve were meant to eat and live forever. It is not by accident that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ gave us as the source and summit of our spiritual life, that which was at the source and summit of paradise, that we might eat and live forever. For in that moment, J Jesus gave us back that which we were made for. I share with you again the words of St. Ephraim, in his hymns on paradise regarding the tree, he says, perhaps that blessed tree, the tree of life, is by its rays the sun of paradise. Its leaves glisten, and on them are impressed the spiritual graces of that garden. In the breezes of the other trees bow down, in the breezes, the other trees bow down as if in worship before that sovereign and leader of the trees. In the very midst, he planted the tree of knowledge, endowing it with awe, hedging it in with dread, so that it might straightaway serve as a boundary to the inner region of paradise, a boundary to the tree of life. Two things did Adam hear in that single decree, that they should not eat of it, 
and that by shrinking from it, they should perceive that it was not lawful to penetrate further beyond that tree. Again, perhaps that blessed tree, the tree of life, is by its rays the sun of paradise. I have to say for a moment here, uh, just a, a few words about the fall. And I know we were at the top of the hour, but Peter was a little long-winded, or I should say Becky was a little long-winded in her introduction. You're going gra- to grant me just three or four extra minutes, okay? And then I'm going to get there. Because although the, the issue of the fall is not central to our time together tonight, we must spend at least a minute here seeing it within its context. For as, as Cardinal Jean Danielou teaches, there can be no serious theology of the incarnation and or the redemption without referring to chapter 3 of Genesis. To leave it in the dark, he says, to, is to risk, uh, to, sorry, to leave it in the dark, to be content with only a small part of the sub- subject, is to risk jarring one's faith in the redemption. And where original sin is minimized, the redemption takes the same path. And where redemption is minimized, faith is gone. St. Augustine tells us that the devil would not have begun by an open, obvious sin to tempt man into doing something that God had forbidden. Had not man already begun to seek satisfaction in himself, consequently, to take pleasure in the words you shall be as gods. The promise of these words, however, would would much more truly have to pass if by obedience Adam and Eve had kept close to their ultimate source and the true source of their being, theocentric, and had not by pride imagined that they were themselves the source of their being. Whoever seeks to be more than he is becomes less. Whenever he aspires to be self-sufficing, he retreats from the one who is truly self-sufficient in himself. Pope Benedict says, everything is bound up in this moment with freedom, in this exitus and readytus, everything is bound up with freedom. The creature has the freedom to turn the positive existence of its creation around, as it were, to rupture in the fall. This is the refusal to be dependent, to say no to return, to no to worship. Love is seen as dependency and it is rejected. And in this moment, even the tree of life is taken away because in the state of disobedience, we will use it to order ourselves further and further, not toward God, but away from him. Notice in Genesis chapter three, Genesis chapter three, verse, Genesis chapter three, verse 22, the reason why Adam and Eve were cast out of paradise, not because of their disobedience, my, my brothers and sisters, no, no. In fact, St. Ephraim says if, if, if they had been disobedient and God had come to paradise and they had confessed their sins, they would have been restored. But they failed to confess their sins. In verse 22, it says, then God said, behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he had been taken. And the fathers of the church say, why would God, if he loves us, not want Adam and Eve to live forever? And St. Ephraim answers that question poetically. He says, God did this, lest this life-giving gift that they would receive through the tree of life become misery and thus bring worse evils upon them than what they had already obtained from the tree of knowledge. From the latter tree, the tree of knowledge, they obtained temporal pains, whereas the former tree, the tree of life, would have made those pains eternal. 
From the latter, they obtained death, which would have cast off from them the bonds of their pains. The former tree, the tree of life, however, would have caused them to live as if buried alive, leaving them to be tortured eternally in their pains. Father Philippe, in his work, The Worship of God, says, says this, Only insofar as he recognizes his creator's sovereign rights over him, can man fully realize his own nature. If he does not discover God and does not recognize God's rights, but looks at himself as his own master, he fails to discover the source and object of his being. And then he is like a traveler who has lost his way, knowing neither where he comes from nor where he is going. That is why God attaches such importance in his training of mankind to the revelation of his mystery and to the first commandment, which enjoins worship. For it is by means of worship that man recognizes his absolute dependency upon God and enters into personal relationship with his creator and his father and comes into his presence and gains practical knowledge of the goodness and sovereignty and majesty of his God. My brothers and sisters, it is for this reason that the fathers tell us that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary in a manger in Bethlehem, so that we who were bowed down by our sins and were living like animals, unable to lift our gaze to God and return our thanks to him, it is for this reason that we were feeding on the things of this earth that Jesus was born in a manger, the feeding trough of animals. St. Athanasius says, men bowed down by the pleasures of the moment and by the frauds and illusions of the evil spirit did not lift up their heads towards the truth. Men had turned from the contemplation of God above and were looking for him in the opposite direction down among the created things of the senses. As St. Irenaeus says famously, the glory of God is man fully alive, but the life of man is the vision of God. My brothers and sisters, all of salvation history, the entire meaning of the incarnation is to be found here in our restoration to God's original plan for us in Eden, where the tree of life stands in the midst of the garden as a revelation of God himself, as man's calling in the image and likeness of God. St. Ephraim tells us the entire aim of God henceforth from the moment of the fall has been to affect the means of Adam, humanity to return to paradise. He says, greatly saddened was the tree of life when it beheld Adam stolen away from it. It sank down into the virgin ground and was hidden only to burst forth again and reappear on Golgotha. My brothers and sisters, we must restore our understanding of the Eucharist in its proper context of the sacrifice of paradise, that sacrifice which we are called to make before the fall. We must restore our vision of the garden as man's home and of the church as the restoration of that home. We must restore our vision of the tree of life, not as a past reality, but as a present gift. We must return to paradise.
I conclude with a beautiful hymn, which is sung in the Byzantine tradition at this time of year in preparation for the coming of Christ in the flesh. Prepare, O Bethlehem, for Eden has been opened to all. Adorn yourself, O Ephrathah, for the tree of life blossoms forth from the virgin in the cave. Her womb is a spiritual paradise planted with divine fruit. If we eat of it, we shall live forever and not die like Adam. Christ comes to restore the image which he made in the beginning. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. All right, Father, are you ready for some questions tonight? Yeah, I was going to steal screen as a joke to you just to give you a hard time, but, <laughs> you know. Oh, Father. Okay, so... <laughs> Coming in, a question coming in regarding love tonight and everything here to talk. Since Ooh, to love. I, I love love. You love I, we love. Talk, we could talk a lot about love. Yeah. <laughs> so since to love means to will the good of the other, how are we to will good to God who has everything? Oh, this is this is this is a good question. I'm going to go back, though. I'm going to just hold that right there. I'm going to come right back here to say this. That. I always want to make sure we're 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 getting our our definitions in scripture right. We're we're biblically literate. So what is Jesus? How does Jesus define love? Come on, guys, on the screen you can un unmute yourself. How does Jesus define love? The 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 most pure form of love. What's he, what does he say? All right, go ahead. Great, greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for. So, so this is so this is the high point of love, right? So I'm holding this question of how do we love God who has everything for a moment. Just to say, how is it that you can lay down your life for, for, for another? So you may say to yourself, oh, well, I mean, if they're walking out in the street and there's a semi-truck coming, I'm going to jump in front of it and I'm going to get hit instead of them, right? That Or like the train coming, jump. Yes, okay, there's a very, very uh, tangible way in which you can love another. But there's 100,000 ways in which you can love another in which you don't do that, right? Now, I want to think about love of, of spouses for a moment. How How do you... No greater love has any than any man than to lay down his life for his friend. Yeah. How is it that a spouse does this on a daily basis? Okay. Really. And, and you could, you're going to give me a hundred answers, right? He, you know, the husband washes the dishes because his wife's been slaving away all day with their 85 children. Uh, you know, he, he always, you know, he, he hold the other person's hand, right? Um, you, so many ways in which a friend loves a friend. Yeah. In a similar way, love for God is, is, is in just this way. Um, love is not dependent upon the incapacity or inability or, uh, or imperfection of the other. Although we are called to live out love in that way, most oftentimes, uh, love is actually the giving yourself to the other in their goodness, in light of their perfection, in what they are called to be. Yes. Love is the willing of the other into perfection. And in the case of the Lord, who is perfect, it is the, the affirmation of the other in their goodness. Love doesn't cease in paradise. Love is perfected. Love exists before the fall not only after. 
after the fall, love gains a new aspect. In fact, I've got a juicy little gem here that I skipped over because I was running out of time and I had this little spot that I on and it's over. It's it's gotta be there. It is. You know, this is this is nice. This is this is Pope Benedict regarding the fall and regarding sacrifice or what I might call love. Yeah. Love toward God. If sacrifice in its essence is simply a returning to love and therefore divinization, worship now in our post-fallen state. So there's this, there's this pre-fallen state definition. If sacrifice in its essence is simply returning to love and therefore divinization. Worship now in our in our post-fallen state has a new aspect: the healing of wounded freedom, atonement, purification, deliverance from estrangement. The essence of worship, of sacrifice remains unchanged, but now it assumes the aspect of healing, the loving transformation of broken freedom. Worship is directed to the other in himself, in all his sufficiency, but now it refers itself to the other who alone can extricate me from the knot that I myself cannot untie. Redemption now needs the Redeemer. He it is who makes his way to us and takes the sheep onto his shoulders. That is, he assumes human nature, and as God, as the God-man, he carries man, the creature, home to God. And so the ready to becomes possible, the return becomes possible. But now sacrifice takes on the form of the cross of Christ, of love that in dying makes a gift of itself. Remember this moment. Love in dying makes a gift of itself. Such sacrifice has nothing to do with destruction. It is an act of new creation, the restoration of creation to its true identity. All worship is now participation in the Pasch, the Pasch of Christ, the passing over from death to life. Here's, here's the, this is getting onto the, the cross, but I have to do it. And it's this short one sentence, but it's a gem. He says, the exterior act of being crucified. And this is where this is where a misunderstanding of sacrifice is a fundamental problem for Christians. If you get it wrong, you're going to get everything wrong. If you get it right, you're going to get everything right. What did Jesus do for us in, on the cross? He says the act of the exterior act of being crucified is accompanied by the interior act of self-giving. The body is given for you. No one takes my life from me, says the Lord. I lay it down for my on my own accord. The salvific work of Jesus on the cross is not that they murdered him. It's that he never let his hope in, in his heavenly father die in his heart. That in this moment, in this moment of murder, he, he gave his fullness of his life in communion to his heavenly father. If you want to dive into that a little bit more, you can go back and listen to my talk at the Institute, Sacrificing to God, Sacrificing to God, in which I, I developed this a little bit more. But you probably want to wait, Dominique, I see you writing it down. You might want to wait until um, like uh, uh, Lent. Okay, so I'm going to have a Lenten. It was a Palm Sunday talk I gave, but talking about the cross. But, but we can talk about this also in terms of the incarnation, in, in the full giving of his life for us in the incarnation the incarnation and 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 the cross are two sides of the same reality this is why in the in the liturgical cycle right now we're reading about the passion narrative god is coming to us he's coming 
to be born of the Virgin Mary. He's coming to Jerusalem. She who is Jerusalem, who is going to become, who has become the womb of, the, of, of God himself as he comes forth for the salvation of the world. The same reality taking place. Okay, that was a really long, I, I apologize, Becky. That was like a talk <laughs> after the talk. Okay, right, I'll, right. I'll be, I'll be more, I'll be more self-controlled, I promise. Wonderful. Thank you, Father. We have a we have another question coming in um, regarding the nature of sacrifice. And there uh, our person's asking, did the fall change the nature of sacrifice in any way? Or is it in essence the same as it was before the fall? Oh, well, I just read the quote. Right. <laughs> I, I just read the quote. Right. Okay. So we'll it remains the same. It remains the same. But now it takes upon the, it, the same action takes upon itself this new aspect of healing which is so beautiful. And I, and I want to me, can I, can, I, can I give you guys a priestly, because we're just in here, we're just ICC family right now. I'm going to give you my priestly advice for a moment. That in your love for those around you, that oftentimes comes out as anger, okay? Because you know, you're, you got your mother and your brother and your sister and all these things around you, right? In, in your relationship with the other, in the image and likeness of God, First of all, are you surprised that your brother is not immaculately conceived? Seriously? Are you surprised that your, your boss is, is, is a sinner? Are you surprised that they're full of pride and they're jealous and they're this way and they're that way and they're that way? All the defects you see in the other, are you surprised? No. So don't get upset when you don't, when you see that what you expect, number one. But number two, I ask you why God placed you in that person's life if it wasn't for that moment. To see the defect in your brother, but not to become their judge, jury, and executioner, but rather to become their physician in the image and likeness of the heavenly physician. As God has come to us in our weakness, we are to go to the other in their weakness. And then to consider how I might bring healing. You know, we're not to turn our eye away, ignore the weakness of the other. Pretend it doesn't exist, but to see it for what it is and then ask myself what I can do to bring healing to the other person. This is the mission of the Christian. This is your gift in the life of the other, as Jesus has been the gift in your life in just this way. That's my priestly advice. Great. Thank you, Father. Gordon, here on screen, go ahead and unmute yourself. There's an, an icon that I really like with things. Uh, it was written with things um, Adam and Eve being drawn out of their graves by Jesus holding on. And mm. there's, a, there's a lot of symbolism that's in that. Who... Have you, have you seen this icon before? Of course, of course, yes. Yeah. So, you, you know, this particular one, when you think about it, it's not just a matter of redemption from that. You know, they had to die so they would no longer suffer, you know, these pains, but also there's something that's there. How is this being drawn back out, this being redeemed, apply to, our, you know, our weekly and sometimes daily? Um, joining in to the Eucharist. Okay, I'm I was having a little bit of a hard time hearing what you were saying. It's a little bit garbled there, Gordon, and your not you, is is your microphone was a little bit unclear. But just say just say the most important point there again about about being drawn out in the Eucharist. But I didn't quite catch your words exactly. Yeah, this re, this redemption that we see here in Adam and Eve are 
our first parents being drawn out, how does that pertain to our daily entering into the Eucharist? Yeah. Okay. I don't know if this is the answer you're looking for, but I'm going to say this. This is a beautiful icon. And and so this is the icon that is, is, is very beautiful. It's the harrowing of Hades. And you'll notice a couple of things. Let's start at the bottom. You'll notice that the black with the pieces of the chain and um and locks and stuff, the bro- broken apart. They're all shattered because those were the chains and the locks binding mankind to 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 Hades, to death. Christ has entered into death. And how did he enter into death? By his cross, by his love. And therefore, he stands upon these brown strips, right? You see these brown things are underneath his feet in the form of a cross. Those are those are gates. Those are doors. If you can set those side by side, they would be two doors, right? But now the doors themselves are broken in the form of the cross. In the, they're broken by God's love. The cross being the revelation of God's love, okay? And then he takes hold of the hands of two people, Adam and Eve. Adam's there in the gray, Eve in the red and the blue. And draws them out. He's pulling them out of the grave. And one of my favorite things about this icon, Peter, if you can use your mouse to go over to Adam's hand, the, the, the one that touches Jesus, yeah. Notice who's grabbing whom, Jesus is grabbing, he's, he's, he's literally like yanking him out, not by Adam's own power, but by the power of God. And this icon, in some sense, is the icon of the incarnation, the, in, the icon of Christ taking our humanity on his shoulders. And that, that beautiful uh, quotation that um, I read to you earlier. We're going to leave this up for a moment, and I'm going to find that that beautiful, there it is, from Pope Benedict. He it is who makes his way to us and takes the sheep onto his shoulders. That is, he assumes our human nature, and as the God-man, he carries man, the creature, home to God. And in this moment, he restores the Eucharist the Eucharistic life, the life which says to God, I receive everything that I have as a gift and I offer it back to you in thanksgiving. And uh, Gordon, I, I I don't know if that's exactly what you were talking about or whatever, but but certainly it could impact what you're saying. Only you're, with your mic a little bit un- uncertain, a little bit whatever, shaky, feel free to call me tomorrow. But I think it gives us much to meditate on. I'm going to encourage you guys to, to remember two things uh, regarding that point. That that picture, maybe three. That picture, the picture of this woman praying in the in the catacombs, and the exitus and reditus, is this image of man in our calling to receive all things as a gift, and that includes your worthless husband and your prideful wife and your bossy boss and your and your and your worthless priest everything is a gift the blind man was a gift in the life of Christ the paralytic was a gift in the life of Christ it became a gift because of what he did with it the cross became a gift do you see the power of god 
in that the worst possible thing that could possibly be imagined, he transformed by his love. The power of God is, is so much greater than the power of evil. If we meet those evils, if we meet those, those deficiencies, if we meet the fall, the fallen human state of, of, of my brother and sister with love, we will, we will infuse into their weakness everything that their weakness lacks. We will give to them the life which they're hungering for, which is what Adam and Eve were made for in the beginning, is which each one of us is made for to our baptism. And then we will offer that Eucharistic gift. We will become a Eucharistic person, a Eucharistic man, a Eucharistic woman. And then, my brothers and sisters, we will be restored in the image and likeness of God. Father, thank you so much. What, what a beautiful evening on love and sacrifice and healing. Thank you. Thank you. Father, guys. would you be will, please close us in prayer this evening? Yes, I, I, I will. I want to, I want to, um, uh, ask you, uh, for your prayers, uh, before, before I give you my blessing, um, your prayers for our whole IC, our entire ICC family, uh, tomorrow marks 40 days before the incarnation. And just as Lent is a journey of preparation, so this time is a journey of preparation for our ICC family as we study together, as we fast together, as we pray together. Uh, and I, I ask you to pray really specifically for those that are engaged in this mission and those that are learning, our benefactors and so forth. Um, and because your prayers, your prayers are effective. Your, your prayers are, it's an act of love by which we fill the other up with everything God wants them to be. And uh and during this time um in which we are we are we are envisioning what what does God have planned for this mission? What is what is the vision he is giving us for what we are doing here to um to fill God's people up with the love he has poured into your heart that all of us might become like these the shining that shining that light like the tree of life with its rays of sun in the midst of paradise, that each one of our members might become that shining light in our communities, that shining light in this mission here at the Institute of Catholic Culture, uh, that in all things we might glorify God. May the blessing of the Lord and his mercy be upon you through his grace and love for mankind at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers and family members. To learn more, get involved and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.